Virginia's pivotal 2021 elections are yet again a little bit closer. The Democrats have now picked their nominees for the statewide offices, and the slates are set for the races in the House of Delegates. 2021 will be our first chance to see how people are responding to the Biden administration, and Virginia is always a good bellwether test for that. In our ongoing coverage of Virginia politics, we'll bring back Julianne Condry, who's one of our favorite experts on the subject, to discuss everything that has happened in the recent primaries. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome, podcast listeners, to another locally focused episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, Assistant Professor of Government at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. Please remember that you can rate and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast provider. Please leave us a five-star rating if you like what we do here. And that you can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte or on Facebook and Instagram through Regent University's Robertson School. Today, once again, we have with us Julianne Condry, RSG student, getting her master's degree from us. But at the same time, Julianne is the president of the Virginia Conservative Women's Coalition and founder of that organization and a government affairs consultant with Aegis and Associates. Julianne, as far as I can tell, knows absolutely everybody in Virginia politics and really has her ear to the ground up there in Richmond. Julianne, thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, Julianne, we are recording this the Monday after the primary, which settled the nominees of the Democratic Party for governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general, and also the nominees for all of the House of Delegates races. Just as we're kind of looking at the map, I saw recorded somewhere that Republicans, I think, have challengers in something like 99 House of Delegates seats, and and Democrats have very few uncontested seats as well. So how are we looking just in terms of, you know, having candidates running in in all of these offices? And just before we discuss the candidates, how would you assess generally how, how competitive these races are in Virginia in 2021 now that we have the fields a little bit more set? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot to unpack there. So, yes, it does appear that there's some question, and actually I haven't had time to verify, on whether or not all 100 seats have Republicans running, but it's either 99 or 100, from my understanding, who have successfully filed to run. And so this will be the most competition or most you know, races that will actually be competitive races meaning that there's somebody from both parties and running in a, a very long time. So this will, it'll be exciting on that level alone that people in every district will have the opportunity to go out and vote for somebody that best they feel best represents them. And so that's exciting. And I think that's a good thing for Virginia as a whole. And as far as, you know, whether or not it's competitive or what things look like, I mean, I think we could start, I know we're going to talk about the gubernatorial nominees and, you know, all of the statewide candidates. And I mean, you can look at it from the statewide office perspective, it, and most, most people are deeming this a pretty competitive year. So I I don't think anyone should take 
anything for granted this year. I, I think it's going to be very competitive at the statewide level as well as the House races. Absolutely. So let's start with that gubernatorial race. Tell us a little bit about the primary results. Obviously, I think it was the one that everybody expected. You know, how this is playing out and, and what impact this will have on that gubernatorial race moving forward. Mm-hmm. So on the Democratic side, Terry McAuliffe, our former governor from 2014 to 2018, won handily the Democrat primary for governor, the uh, gubernatorial candidate. And he, I mean, spent a lot of money, actually, even in this race, reintroducing himself to Virginians and ensuring his win. So it was a little interesting that he felt the need to spend as much as he did this particular race, considering he had terrific name ID, but clearly it was effective and and he walked away with a significant win. He will be facing Glenn Youngkin, who... Glenn Youngkin has raised $15.9 million since announcing his candidacy in January, and Cullif has raised $13.1 million. So I think we're going to see, for the first time in a while, a more financially competitive opponents, which we had not seen in the past, because Terry McAuliffe significantly outspent Cuccinelli in the 2013 race. So this will be different on that side. So if you don't like political ads, stop watching TV now in Virginia. Correct. I This will, I mean, everyone is saying, and I, I don't think there's any question that this will be the most expensive race in Virginia's history. And so that means a lot of TV ads. And, you know, it, it just, I think it'll be very interesting. I think there we will also see a lot more ground operatives, especially compared to last year, where during COVID people were not, you know, doing as much on the ground or in person we will definitely see a huge uptick in that. So looking at this matchup between Yunkin and McAuliffe, and you've been doing this stuff for, for a long time and following Virginia politics, what would you say are the sort of biggest strengths and biggest weaknesses of, of each of these candidates just as we start the long run to the, to the general election? Mm-hmm. So, so I think for, for Terry McAuliffe, obviously he's got a lot of name ID. He actually left... You know, he completed his term with pretty favorable uh, rankings across the board from Virginians as far as the job that he did. So, I mean, he's he's starting out pretty strong right there and also very well funded. So, I you know, he's got a lot of strengths and sort of the incumbent role. I mean, in Virginia, you're only allowed to have one consecutive term. So we we don't really have a true incumbent, but this is as close to an incumbent as you can get in a gubernatorial position. So I think he has definitely those strengths. Whereas Youngkin is also coming in across the board on both Democrat and Republican sides, and and as well as with independents, voters tend to gravitate toward outsiders right now. And technically, McAuliffe is no longer an outsider. And uh, as far as, you know, he's been in elected office in, here in Virginia, whereas Youngkin has not. And so that is actually a strength of his. He is a very accomplished corporate executive who came up out of very humble beginnings and uh, has been a huge success in the corporate world. And that speaks to a lot of people really well. And he's also going to be incredibly well-funded. Yeah, it's interesting. I look at both of the the party coalitions and I see the challenge 
as much internal as external. For McAuliffe, one of the one of the challenges that I would see is there's a disconnect between your sort of white progressive base of the Democratic Party, which which is probably dominant in the Democratic Party in Northern Virginia, and the base that frankly they need to turn out, which is the African Americans in, in Hampton Roads and Richmond and other parts of the state, and, and leaners who who might lean Democratic who are actually a little bit more moderate in at this point. And then of course for the Republicans, for for Yunkin, the challenge is you know, the ongoing hangover of Trump, of election integrity issues, of, you know, people concerned that, you know, if they genuinely believe, as many of them do, that the election was stolen in 2020, why bother voting? You know, and that's something I've even heard from Republicans that I've talked to just in, in you know, doing some participant observation stuff on in the run up to that. So I'm curious as to your thoughts. Number one, are those two of the biggest challenges that the candidates face? And then how do you think separately they will try to try to balance, and, uh, if you will, those those challenges? No, I think you're. I think you're dead on. I think those are. Uh, you know, unfortunately, on the Republican side, there are there is some contingency who have stated that they no longer wish to vote, which is a shame because that is a privilege that we should not take for granted, and everyone should vote. Um, and the votes do matter. So, and if nothing else, I mean, we can see on a very local level the votes do matter. So. I would think that that would be a shame if people did not. Delegate Dave Yancey tells you that in Virginia, your votes do matter. Yeah. And for those who don't know that story, Delegate Dave Yancey won re-election in 2017, literally in a tie election based on a coin flip. Yes. And if literally one vote had gone either way, the other way, it would have been a different outcome. Yes. So, yes, I would encourage everyone to vote. And as far as yes, I would agree that the on the Democratic side... There's a definite, I wouldn't necessarily say split, but there's definitely different objectives and different favorites and preferred ideas that are being debated on that side. And I, I will say that McAuliffe did help a lot of the Black Caucus get reelected in the last cycle. And so they are very supportive of him in this cycle. So that is you know, something not to discredit. In fact, some very prominent Black legislators have come forward to endorse him and support him. So I think that that will definitely have an influence. And as far as like the Trump factor, yes, unfortunately, I think Trump will be a negative factor in some regards, in particular for independent and more moderate voters. I mean, whether you like Trump or you don't like Trump, it's hard to deny that he's anything but incredibly unpopular in Fairfax County. Correct. So, you know, that's just it's a reality of the, of the situation. All right. Well, I think that's going to be an interesting race. High spending. Everyone will be tired of <laughs> the ads by the end of this. And, you know, I would say it could go either way. So looking to the next race, this one I think is fascinating, which is the lieutenant governor's race. So before but before we get to that, let's just discuss. So who is the, the nominee of the Democrats for lieutenant governor? What's her background and sort of where does she fit into the Democratic Party as it is right now? Mm-hmm. So Delegate Hala Ayala um, from Prince William, she's has served in the General Assembly and is currently serving. She's Afro-Latina, so she will be, they're considering her the first Hispanic woman on a statewide ballot in Virginia. That's because Winsome Sears, who is the Republican nominee who was elected a month ago, she was the first Black woman nominated to a statewide ticket in Virginia. And she's Afro-Caribbean, as I understand. She's from Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then Ayala's uh, Salvadorian, right? She is, yes, El Salvadorian. 
Irish. Uh, she has interesting, true American blend, uh, which is which is exciting. So I, I'm I'm particularly excited about this race because no matter who wins, we're going to have the first female lieutenant governor. Yep. And it'll be a woman of color. So I think that's something you know a good first to have in Virginia. And it was an interesting race at the final hour, the 11th hour. The current governor endorsed delegate Ayala. So I think that that might have had some helped pull her across the line a little bit. Or, I mean, she's, she's still won by a, a decent margin, I mean, 37% compared to Rasul, 24%. So she won by a significant margin, but I think the endorsement might have helped contribute to that. And frankly, I think a lot of people wanted to see a female woman of color go up against the Republican lieutenant governor nominee. You have to think that if it's if it's a, a white guy going up against Winsome Sears, that's not a look that the Democrats wanted. Correct. Yeah. So ideologically speaking, my my sense is that Ayala sort of straddles the line between what you might call sort of an establishment democratic liberal and with, with some tendencies more toward the progressive side of things. Is that kind of the profile that she has in the uh, in the House of Delegates? Yes. Although, I mean, I will say in my interactions with her, I think she, you know, she definitely appreciates um, common sense and especially, you know, legislation that might deem, you know, some of her choices on the more moderate side, but she's definitely in the progressive wing of the party. And then, of course, Winsome Sears is on the more conservative side, Was has been a, a pro-Trump uh, advocate, but also you know, she's got a little bit of a mavericky streak. Uh, my introduction to her in politics was her running that write-in bid against Corey Stewart in 2018 for, for Senate because she was not necessarily pleased with some of the rhetoric that was coming out of, of Corey's campaign. So I think it's a very interesting race. And I think the interaction between the two of them, the debates between them would be would be fascinating. Anything else that people should be watching in, in this race that we haven't covered? Well, I think it's you know, one of the things that came up during the Democrat pr- primary in, in this particular race was they were looking at some of the contributions that Delegate Ayala had accepted, you know, Dominion in particular. And so that would kind of put her in the more, you know, quote unquote, establishment wing by accepting that donation. And whereas Delegate Rasul, one of her opponents, that was one of the items that he hit her on because he's he's on a slightly more progressive side, I think, generally. Yeah. Now, my 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 read on it was that Rasul is more more far left than than some of the other candidates that were running. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So yeah, that that will definitely be something to to watch there as well. Looking at the attorney general's race, if you would describe for us a little bit the the Democratic primary and then who won and, and what the impact of that is as they're preparing to run against Jason Meares. Sure. So for the attorney general's race on the Democratic uh, primary side, unlike the other races, I mean, lieutenant governor had six, there were six candidates. Governor, there were five candidates. So attorney general, there were only two. So it was the least crowded of, of the three races. And so it made the choices a little easier for voters. Herring obtained, he ended up with um, over 50%. He had 56% and Jones had 43 mm. So that, again, Jones being a young African-American, he's in the House of Delegates. He is on the more progressive side, I would think. But, I mean, Herring overall is very progressive as well. So I don't, I don't know if you 
comparing like if there's really much of a difference there. But Herring is the incumbent. He's obviously his name ID is is very good. And he also has a record as attorney general, which is, you know, impressive to Democrats. So I think definitely it was a, a challenge for, for Jay Jones to come up against them, even though he did have the endorsement of prominent Democrats. Yeah, that was interesting. And by prominent Democrats, I think notable among them, of course, is Ralph Northam himself. Yes. And from our area down here, Elaine Luria, I think, had also endorsed Jay Jones. Now, that one might be more explicable just by regional factors. But how much of Northam's endorsement do you think goes back to the contretemps between him and Herring, in which Herring called for Northam's resignation and then uh, copped to a blackface scandal of his own? I mean, I think that might factor in, but I think I think Northam, I think he seems to have embraced kind of more of the let's have some new people on board, and right. I think I think that might factor in. And I, I mean, I, I'm not discrediting that particular instance, but I don't I don't know that it only he would know if that played that much of a factor. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, so I, I guess the question that I have is is keeping some of that in mind and keeping the fact that that Herring, in fact, you know, did defeat an African-American candidate and, and McAuliffe defeated several. I mean, mm-hmm. two out of the three folks that he ran against were African-American. How much hay do you think Republicans are going to make out of that? And how effective do you think that would be as a general election strategy that they might pursue? Well, I mean, I think it should be noted in particular because one of the things that the Democratic candidates like to hammer Republicans on is, you know, quote unquote, lack of diversity and so on. So I, it's kind of ironic that the Democrats did nominate two white older men to uh, two of the three statewide positions. And so I think that would will be noticed. You know, it's up to the voters to determine whether or not that that is, you know, a make or break deal for them. Right. Well, and of course, the irony being that McAuliffe seems to have won, at least in part, based on support from the African-American community and the African-American establishment. Mm-hmm. So if we're looking at people who had really bad nights on primary night, I would have to say Lee Carter has to be near <laughs> near the top of the list there. Yeah. Can you tell everybody who Lee Carter is and why he had such a bad night on primary night? Yeah, so so Lee Carter is Delegate Lee Carter and he serves in the Prince William area. He he was on the ticket twice, so he was running for governor as well as running to retain his house seat, which I believe rules were changed in order to even make that possible. But anyway, that's a sidebar. But he lost in both races. So he also lost the nomination for the house seat that he has been holding. And he is a, I mean, he defines himself as a socialist and he has been one of the most activist oriented delegates, just physically out there. He was out there and recording himself during, you know, the riots and the protests of 2020. And, you know, definitely has his Twitter feed has gotten a lot of attention. And he's had a lot of interesting comments throughout his tenure. So so that he came out at a loss on, on both accounts. Now, him, him losing for governor was expected, as I recall. But yes, the, the loss in the House of Delegates race was something of an upset. Mm-hmm. Do we know anything about the, the challenger who, who took that seat? It's Michelle Maltonado. I actually don't know a whole lot about her. Forgive me, I, I don't have that in front of me. But she, I know um, from what I have heard, 
that there were many people within that party in that area that were looking for an alternative candidate to run. I think perhaps Lee Carter's politics, his method of politics was not not appreciated by everyone in his party in that area. Yeah, uh, it's it's quite it's quite astonishing to get rules changed so that you can run for two offices at the same time, only to uh, to lose in both. So, looking at some of the House of Delegate races and, and other races, are there any other primary results that you think are particularly interesting looking toward the general election? Mm-hmm. So, one of the other delegates, Samira, also uh, lost his nomination. He was the incumbent in District eighty six, and Irene Shin was nominated. I think one thing to note is women are doing performing well on both the Democratic side and on the Republican side. And that's something that I think should be noted. So Irene Shin was his challenger, and she won with close to 52% of the vote. And also another another interesting one, I don't think we mentioned, Jay Jones did hold his House seat. So right. he will still be running for the House of Delegates seat in District 89. Yeah, and given his connections to the Democratic establishment, I think depending on redistricting, I think he, he could end up in Congress if he wants it. Oh, another, another District 45 was Delegate Mark Levine. He actually was defeated by Elizabeth Bennett Parker, again, another female, and with a pretty significant margin. She, she had almost 60% of the vote. So I think that is notable as well. And he was running for lieutenant governor as well, so another gentleman who had a bad night all around. Yes. All right. Any uh, any Republican races for House of Delegates that, as you're looking through primary results, really stand out as, as sort of interesting? Well, uh, Charles Poindexter, who has been a delegate for some time, a very, very kind gentleman, he was defeated by Ren Williams in District 9. So that's uh, a younger younger challenger, one in that case, where Kathy Byron, who is the first female caucus chair on the Republican side, she defeated her opponent handily with 81% of the vote. Mm-hmm. Those were races that people were looking at. And also Mark Early Jr., he won in District 68. So that was that was another race that a number of people were watching. And oh, District 83, Tim Anderson came out on top with 48% of the vote, former delegate Chris Stolle at 47, and Phil Kersmerziak, forgive, forgive me, I'm mispronouncing his name, uh, had a small portion of the vote as well. And uh, that seat is currently held by a Democrat as well, correct? Correct. No, it should be, it should be interesting. So people who are, are watching the House of Delegates races at this point, have there been any estimates on just how many of these these races, as we get down to the wire, they expect to be really tight, really competitive going into November? Honestly, I don't. I think it's too soon where people are still figuring out who some of these newly nominated Democrats are and really assessing those races. Mm-hmm. But and, and, you know, their strengths and weaknesses. But pretty much across the board, most people agree that the statewide and the House races will all be the majority in the House will be a fairly competitive season. And Democrats in the House of Delegates hold, what, a six-seat majority? Is that right? Yes. Very good. Now, last question in terms of looking at November. So I know earlier when we talked, there was some confusion about exactly what role redistricting was, was going to play, because obviously 
the maps are not going to be done in time for the House of Delegates race in 2021. Have we gotten any clarity on when they're expecting the new maps, when they're expecting the data to, to base that on, and whether, in fact, they're going to have a new House of Delegates, uh, set of House of Delegates elections in 22, as well as then again in 23? As far as I understand, in talking to folks who are more involved with that, there it sounds like it's still up in the air. We're supposed to have a special session called in the General Assembly to deal with that specifically. And all of that, all of that will be determined during that special session. All right. Well, we will keep that in mind as well. And we'll have to have you on again as we get closer. Now, Julianne, I know I want to give you a chance to, to put a plug out because this is going to go out well before it. But I know that you guys over at the Virginia Conservative Women's Coalition have a big event coming up. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about that and where they can find out more details on that? Sure. First, I have to offer a correction. I think on the House of Delegates split right now, it's 55 to 45. Okay. So 55 Democrats, 45 Republicans. So it's 10 seats. Yes. So we have on June 26, we're going to have an event in Richmond featuring, well, we're going to be featuring some of the candidates for the 2021 cycle, but we're also going to um, have special guest Molly Hemingway, who is editor at The Federalist. And we are very excited um, that she will be joining us. That's fantastic. And uh, where can folks find out more about that event? Mm-hmm. You can go to the website vaconservativewomen.com, vaconservativewomen.com. All right. Very good. So again, the event's going to be on June 26th. vaconservativewomen.com is where you can find out more. And that's going to be a wrap for this episode. Julianne Condry, thank you for coming on. All right. You're welcome. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Please remember you can rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. This should be dropping a little bit later on this week. And we've got a few more exciting things planned for the not too distant future. So please stick around and stay with us. And for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off.